On September 3rd, 1955, 50,000 people clustered together in crooked lines, each anxiously waiting to see the swollen and battered body of Emmett Till. Some people couldn't handle the sight of the dislocated eye socket that now drooped all the way down to his cheek, or it could have been the strong stench of rotting flesh that made them hysterical. Either way, this image was definitely one you couldn't forget, one you couldn't fully describe. And even if you weren't physically present at the open casket ceremony, the photographs and the magazines on the news stations and talk on the radio haunted you, constantly reminding you of your social status, that the colour of your skin automatically makes you less worthy less significant, insignificant. However, this isn't going to solely be about Emmett or the tale behind his gruesome murder. Though it is captivating, it's only a piece of the puzzle. This story will explore the hierarchical prison which enslaved the lives of men long after the abolition of slavery and how that empire came tumbling down. Together, will examine the eradication of the American racial infrastructures. Sit tight. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution declared that neither slavery nor involuntary service except as a punishment for crime shall exist under the United States and that Congress has the power to enforce this article. Its purpose was to terminate hundreds of years of generational servitude, oppression and the well-established persecution existing in the everyday life of an African American. This means that from 1865 onwards, that is, from the year the amendment was implemented, hundreds of thousands of people of color should have been freed instantly from servitude, oppression, and persecution, and gone about their everyday life like that of their white counterpart. Should have been freed. I'm guessing this was the plan, but things weren't really that straightforward. You see, what the amendment did was to outlaw slavery and declare the freedom of African Americans. What it didn't do was specify how the race relations between whites and blacks would be after this. It didn't outline how these two races were meant to coexist in an area that was previously dominated by one. And so this economic and political system of racism which characterized most of the South for hundreds of years was left undealt with. From this we can immediately see the emergence of a crack in the agenda for complete freedom. And whilst it's detrimental to African Americans, the ambiguity created an opportunity for white Southerners in particular who were against the amendment to formulate their own laws which rectified unanswered questions. Racial segregation quickly became governed by black codes and Jim Crow laws for the following years to come, and they're effectively looked at in greater detail later on in the podcast. But one essential ingredient required for the successful execution of these new regulations was the hypernormalization of African Americans. Now you're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, hypernormalization is basically where everyone pretends that everything is okay. 
and so shocking situations become everyday life to people involved in it. In the 2016 documentary by Adam Curtis titled Hypernormalization, he describes it as, quote, a situation where people are so much a part of the system that it's impossible to see beyond it, and so it becomes hypernormal, end quote. In this situation, the question is, how do you begin convincing someone who was made to believe that they don't belong in society, that they are a false citizen, that they are un-American, that everything they've been told for eons was basically a lie. It's already difficult to separate that narrative from how they go about their everyday life, and the gap in the amendment makes it even harder. You see, this hypernormality is the foundation of the utopia, the building blocks to the system and sustenance of racial segregation. And it's only when the people depart from this fakeness that the system will crumble. Ten-year-old Jada was slapped so hard her nose started bleeding. Her crying was forgetting to step off the sidewalk for a young white girl and her mother who walked in the opposite direction. A tragic mistake. Running home to complain to mom did her no good. There were no hugs or kisses, no comfort or aid. It's discipline. A simple lesson she has to learn to not make the same mistake. It's her fault. She was wrong, right? Douglas Massey and Nancy Denton identified five dimensions of residential segregation in 1988, and their work has been used to clarify the operation of racial segregation in America, especially in the 20th century. From these dimensions, the most relevant elements for our case study are evenness, referring to the unequal distribution of social groups across an urban area, exposure, the degree of potential contact between groups in neighborhoods, and clustering, the gathering of different minorities in one space. So the aim of segregationists would be to construct a system where social groups are devilishly unequally apportioned, where there is minimal contact between different groups and where minorities are stationed together in one district often leading to the creation of one big ghetto. Early on, we learned that hypernormalization was the foundation of this racial infrastructure, what keeps it all stable. Let's call these dimensions the architectural design, the vision set in place for running the society. Next on the list would be to find a way to make this image reality. And how they plan on doing this, you ask? Black codes and Jim Crow laws. Some of you have probably heard of these before, but for those of you who aren't familiar with these terms, here's a crash course. Black codes were restrictive laws imposed to limit the liberty of African Americans, and they were mainly used in southern states from 1865. Whilst they did acknowledge the end of slavery and gave basic rights to black people like owning property, everything else was prescribed, especially voting rights. These rules operated as a mirror image of slave codes, relentlessly evoking the representation of alienation upon black people, or what I would call un-Americanness. 
The effect of this was to cultivate an atmosphere of false consciousness which amplified the existing hypernormalization. Jim Crow laws, on the other hand, became a way of life. Named after a minstrel cartoon character, these laws enhanced black codes, legitimizing anti-black racism in every way imaginable from 1877 until the mid-1960s. Apart from intensifying segregation and preventing black rights, some other rules included the prohibition of black people showing affection towards each other in public spaces because it was offensive to watch, and never being allowed to laugh derisively at a white person. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm here wondering why the African-Americans couldn't have then and there formed a massive revolt against these emerging laws. It's that history of lynching, it's that history of racial violence, of families feeling unsafe, of young men being killed for no reason. That was Lydia Plath, and I'm Associate Professor of US History in the History Department at the University of Warwick. And she's absolutely right. These laws were undergirded by violence, real and threatened. Going against them would be putting your home, job, family, or even your own life at risk. But Professor, why was lynching so prevalent during this time? Lynching becomes rife in the years after Reconstruction, during and after Reconstruction. The unsuccessful attempts between 1867 and 77 to make newly freed slaves full citizens. Because enslaved people had a monetary value, right? That there was being a black person in America, you, there was literally a money attached to that. When that goes away, when slavery is abolished, that gives white people the freedom to take out their anger on black bodies. And so they come up with lots of excuses about sexual violence and about economic stuff. It's not about that. It's, it's about their anger and their frustration that people that they have for generations been told are not as good as them are suddenly claiming equality. Um, and those are the reasons that lynching happens. And so in 1868 and 70, when the 14th and 15th Amendments were implemented to give black people equal protection against the law by strengthening their legal rights and also to formally provide voting rights, it was too late. The infrastructure was too strong and had become conventional. And so any attempts to improve the position of black people were hollowed out. These laws were finally interwoven into the daily lives of African Americans, becoming invisible. Where do we go from here? You're not meant to be here, Plessy. Get out before it's too late. Before it... Being mixed-race then justify sitting in the whites-only section. Your purity is blemished. Now the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of racial segregation, so long as it's separate but equal. Separate private schools, separate libraries, separate restaurants, separate water fountains, separate parks, prisons, door entrances and exits, churches, cemeteries, public facilities, public accommodations, public schools, 1896. Separate but equal, yet inherently unequal. The verdict from Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 enshrined the doctrine of separate but equal as constitutional justification for racial segregation. It's now been 59 years since this landmark decision, and the infrastructure has been thriving. Jim Crow laws have blossomed beyond expectations as African Americans are day and night alienated from society. They are un-American. Whilst interviewing Professor George Lewis, a professor of American history at the University of Leicester, 
We discussed how American history is a contest between the ideas of Americanism and un-Americanism, who belongs and who doesn't. This racial infrastructure was intricately built to depict segregationists as fully American. But there's something lurking in the shadows, a change in the atmosphere that's about to happen, perhaps. On September 3rd, 1955, 50,000 people clustered together in crooked lines, each anxiously waiting to see the swollen and battered body of Emmett Till. He was kidnapped, severely tortured, and eventually lynched by two white men for allegedly whistling at one of their wives in a store. However, the details of what actually transpired in that moment are still ambiguous. Found in the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi a few days after his death, his body was so disfigured, making him only identifiable by a ring on his finger given to him by his mother. But it's not specifically what happened to Emmett that's crucial because lynchings occurred ever so often during this time period. It's what happened afterwards. The initiative his mother took to ensure that her child's name was one you would never forget. The initiative that shook the infrastructure. All the way in Chicago, Mamie Till demanded the return of her 14-year-old son's corpse. And upon witnessing the deformity of what was left of her only child firsthand, she decided to have a public funeral service to let the people see what she'd seen. And also arranged for Emmett's pictures to be published on Chicago Defender and Jet Magazine, which were especially popular within the black community. And like a crashing wave, Emmett's story rippled through neighborhoods, acting as a catalyst that drew direct attention to the deprivation of rights and diabolical treatment of African Americans. There was no more drifting around in this fictitious simulation of reality, as the hypernormalization that once suffused through all corners of this infrastructure started to dissipate. Racism is, is metaphysical, right? It's really difficult to bring up the metaphysical idea of racism in its many different forms, microaggressions, major aggressions, into a single physical thing. And I think one of the things that maybe Till did was show racism in its physical form. If you're going to accept racism in the Southern states, hey, guess what? This is what it looks like. And this is where, for me, that comes back to ideas of Americanism and un-Americanism. If you take a single frame of Emma Till's body in a casket, you're asking a very simple question. And that question is, whose side are you on? It's a binary, either or. Should we be doing this or should we not? And for me, that question then becomes, is this Americanism or is this Pan-American? You got this single photographic image of Emmett, which represented the absence of rights to participate in society and the rights to do so in the comfort of another race. It also represented the constitutional support for gratuitous injustice, meaning that in every situation, you would be found guilty. At this point, everything dawned on the African-Americans. There's nothing left to take or lose. And this sparked a fire to fight back. The anger previously suppressed by the infrastructure had broken free to burn it all down. What else about Emmett's case do you think caused so much outrage? I think his youth is important. And if you think about those magazine spreads in Jet, showing that picture of him alive, looking smart, looking like a good kid, up against what they did to him had a really significant impact on people. When you think about that really long build-up, I think Emmett Till's death feels like some kind of final straw. And indeed it was. Right now, it's civil rights versus the infrastructure.
Almost a hundred days later, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama. Years later, when Jesse Jackson, her fellow activist, asked why she didn't go to the back of the bus given the consequences, he said, quote, she thought about Emmett Till and couldn't do it, end quote. She thought of that physical representation of racism and could not tolerate the system any longer. Her arrest provoked the Montgomery bus boycott where African Americans refused to ride city buses in Montgomery as protests against segregated seating. Although this lasted 13 months beginning from December 5, 1955, it was ultimately a success when the US Supreme Court ordered Montgomery to integrate its bus system. In 1957, all eyes were on the desegregation of U.S. public schooling in the South, when nine black students were enrolled into Little Rock Central High School, which until then had been all white. You can imagine the disapproval of segregationists and white mobs who threw stones at and threatened to kill them. Despite the condemnation, all except one of the Little Rock Nine graduated, which intensified efforts to desegregate other isolated schools in the 1960s. By this time, sit-ins in public places had become a popular trend. This is a form of direct action and involves one or more people occupying an area of protest. My personal favorites were the 1958 sit-in at a drugstore in Kansas and the 1960 sit-in at a department store located in North Carolina. What started with four students quickly escalated to 300 in a matter of days. And in both situations, the stores had to change their policy on segregated seating. This form of peaceful protest spread throughout the South and the North, attacking segregation in libraries, beaches, and other public establishments. In 1963, a mock election was organized to combat the disenfranchisement faced by black people and was called the Freedom Ballot. It challenged the concept of voter qualification which prevented the approval of black votes by proving that large numbers of African Americans could vote in a peaceful manner when required to. Coupled with Martin Luther King's famous I Had a Dream speech and the 1964 Freedom Summer Project aimed at increasing black voter registration in Mississippi, the movement helped convince President Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which respectively ended segregation in public places and overcame the legal barriers that restrained the right to vote under the 15th Amendment. Together, all these actions had a common underlying factor, but I do understand that this may be a lot to process at once, so here's a summary of the general consensus. If you look at the general US view of race relations, if we take 1950 as a, as a year halfway through the century, it's pretty clear that for the majority of Americans, civil rights activism is probably un-American and segregationists are probably closer to being American because of the seniority rule, the, the number of Southern white Democrats who are in power. If you then extend that by about 10 years time from 1950 to 1960, that seems to have come full circle. There are now an increasing number of Americans who are seeing segregation as un-American and therefore civil rights activists play to the fact, I would argue, that their movement is an American movement. It's a movement for Americanism. Precisely. By this time, there had been a change in perspectives on the functioning of the infrastructure and the acceptance of the work done by segregationists. But you still may be a bit confused on how exactly the measures explored above helped showcase that the civil rights movement was an American movement. I think there are a number of different ways that, in which they try to do that. One is the dignity of protest and the, the dignity of the type of protest that they choose. The flip side of that 
is strategic protest that is designed to highlight the indignities and therefore the un-Americanism of the segregationist side, and that's where Mami Till comes in, I think, with the open coffin in particular. And an ongoing question of respectability. And then the other one that is key is, is religion. There is a battle on where religion fits into ideas of Americanism and un-Americanism, and the civil rights movement tried to show that if you are religious, Americanism must mean accepting rights for African-Americans. Each individual protest confronted the separate but equal doctrine head-on, challenging restrictions placed on the liberty of black people, and all of this was done without the use of violence. This was a significant tactic, which emphasized the fact that all of what was previously hidden within daily activities and experiences had been exposed, revealing their vile nature. It was not acceptable. The hypernormalization that once existed was definitely no more. But there was something else that the protest conveyed. One of the other things that, that is groundbreaking about the Till case is that it shows the compressing nature of fear has been broken. This has shown a, a lot of Jim Crow segregation is only allowed to work whilst the overall sense of fear pervades every part of Southern life. So that's part and parcel of, of what you learn when you were growing up and understand the line where fear becomes the reality of violence. So in opening that up to, to public scrutiny through Jet and Ebony and, and through the, uh, the other news coverage, it's also making a, a really symbolic act out of the fact that we no longer governed by fear and we will bring this to people's attention and we will show how un-American your activities are. I must admit that the protest could have gone either way, meaning that no change could have happened. If we think about it like a roller coaster ride, too much force exerted on it would make it collapse. With civil rights, there was definitely a fear of retribution, outbreak of war, and failure. But on a roller coaster, you also get an adrenaline rush, and this rush was being felt in those moments of protest. It was fight or flight, and at rock bottom, all you can do is fight. The civil rights movement made the invisible visible, which ultimately dismantled the racial infrastructure from inside out.